Hey, I've got some exciting news for you. For nearly a decade, the Social Media Marketing Society has been helping marketers like you to keep up with the changing times. This is our private community just for marketers, and the doors are open right now. When you join, you get access to ongoing training and become part of a welcoming community of marketers who are just like you. Learn more at smmarketingsociety.com. Again, smmarketingsociety.com. Welcome to the Web3 Business Podcast, helping you navigate the future of business. And now, here is your host, Michael Stelzner. Hello, hello, hello. Thank you so much for joining me for the Web3 Business Podcast, brought to you by Social Media Examiner. I'm your host, Michael Stelzner, and this is the podcast for innovative thinkers who want to know what works in the world of Web3. Today, I'm going to be joined by Eric Calderon, also known as Snowfro. He's the founder of Chromie Squiggles and Art Blocks, and we're going to talk all about generative art and how it works and what artists need to know and how collectors need to understand it. If you're into art at all and you're interested in the concept of generative art, I think you're going to find today's interview absolutely fascinating. By the way, I'm at Stelzner on Instagram and at Mike underscore Stelzner on Twitter. If you're new to this podcast, be sure to follow this show so you don't miss any of our future content. I was recently at Social Media Marketing World, and I had a chance to connect with some of our best customers. A lot of them listen to our podcast, just like you do. Not everyone knows what I'm about to share with you. We do something special here at Social Media Examiner. The best of the best of the guests that you hear on the Social Media Marketing Podcast not only teach at our conference, but they're also part of our secret society called the Social Media Marketing Society. Each month, our top tier guests who have been on my show are invited to train inside our society for an exclusive group of marketers who are just like you. The training is designed to help you go from being a passive consumer of content to a marketer who is in active learning mode. So if you're ready to make real progress with your marketing, you're a perfect fit for the Social Media Marketing Society. Join us by visiting smmarketingsociety.com. We've got a really big sale that is ending very soon, so don't delay. Again, visit smmarketingsociety.com and join today. Let's transition over to this week's interview with Eric Calderon. Helping you to simplify your Web3 journey, here is this week's expert guide. Today, I'm very excited to be joined by Eric Calderon, known online as Snowfro. If you don't know who Eric is, he's the founder of Artblocks, a generative NFT art platform. He's also the man behind the Chromie Squiggles NFT project. Eric, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thank you very much for having me. How's it going with you? It's great. I am actually going through a little flood and a reconstruction of one of the closets in my kids' bedrooms. Oh, so if anybody hears pounding and stuff, that's what's going on. But hey, you know what? Thank goodness there's people out there that specialize in this kind of stuff. Now, here's what we're going to talk about today, everybody. Today, Eric and I are going to explore generative art and what it means for artists and collectors. But before we go there, Eric, I would love to hear your backstory. How'd you get into NFTs? How'd you get into art, Web3, the whole shebang? Start wherever you want to start. Oh, man. Well, art, let's stay, start with that. I actually spent many years in high school, even in middle school, in photography. 
to the point where I even had like a mini dark room in my closet, black and white photography, developing my own pictures, you know, surrounded by art since I was a kid. My grandfather was an artist. My brother is an incredible artist. Over the, I guess, the first 10 years out of college, it was just kind of like this black hole of uh, just trying to figure out what was going on in my life and who I was. And then, you know, I met my wife who kind of just, you know, unleashed a whole separate, you know, journey for me, both in collecting art and creating art, being being confident in, in the stuff that I was putting out there. I was making art, let's say, about 10 years ago using projection mapping, which is a technology where you control the outputs of a projector onto a three-dimensional surface. And the tools that were available were not the tools that I needed to do what I wanted to do. So I had to kind of create those tools myself from scratch. Got frustrated with projection mapping because it's actually just a really big pain in the butt to get a projector to line up with a 3D object on a wall and switched over to trying to reproduce some of these kind of color gradients that I've kind of been tinkering with, you know, for most of my life, just the idea of gradients and stippling and dithering is something that's really uh, fascinating and intriguing to me. Started making 3D sculptures. I got a 3D printer and started 3D printing pieces that I would then paint and assemble into like larger pieces. All of these things kind of came to a, a bit of a stop when I had my first child. You know, you can't have toxic paint and a bunch of like small pieces on a table 24-7 like I was able to do before. So, you know, kind of concentrated on on my first kiddo for a while. And then in that time, I discovered the blockchain. You know, I've been hearing about it for years. My brother had been telling me about it for years. And in that first year of understanding what a blockchain was and kind of going down the Bitcoin rabbit hole, I also went down the Ethereum rabbit hole and the Ethereum blockchain is a blockchain that allows you to program stuff. So it's kind of like a big computer, you know, and uh, like I like to tell people, we're all using the same computer. It's, you know, we're all logging into the same computer. And there's something really, really, really fascinating to me about that. So I started diving into that. I started writing some smart contracts, which are, you know, the the way that you communicate with the blockchain. Uh, And then June 2017, uh, I was browsing Reddit and discovered a link for a project called the CryptoPunks, which ended up being kind of like the first widely uh, celebrated NFT. Could not believe what I was seeing. It was both a combination of generative art and, and the fact that, you know, these guys didn't create 10,000 pixelated characters by hand, but instead wrote an algorithm that could generate these pixelated characters. You know, this idea of provable ownership of a digital asset just kind of completely blew my mind and you know there's there's a really interesting moment with with cryptopunks where i was claiming the cryptopunks and i got to pick the ones i wanted and you know we we all know that you know rarity is kind of an important thing within the generative art world or the at least the nft ecosystem and i was able to pick a bunch of rare cryptopunks and in that moment of picking rare cryptopunks i thought you know the blockchain could provide data where instead of me clicking and picking a specific CryptoPunk, I could just say, I want a CryptoPunk. And the blockchain would spit out one based on whatever the, the, the percentage of, of chance of getting that type of CryptoPunk would be. So instead of claiming 34 zombie CryptoPunks, I might have, if I was lucky, gotten one. And that all came together that very moment of uh, thinking that generative art, the projection mapping stuff I used to do in the past, these color gradients and all these things came into a moment of clarity where I thought blockchain technology could actually be a catalyst for generative art to have new meaning through the uh, digital object ownership value proposition. Real quick rabbit trail. You got 34 rare punks. Were you able to sell those to ultimately fund some stuff? I'm just curious. Oh yeah. I mean, in, in fact, the initial crypto punk sales, because I, you know, I remember claiming them and I, I, a lot of the people that joined me in that initial time with crypto punks realized that 
I don't think anybody was claiming these with this thought that we would make money on these things. I mean, it was just like this little project. It was the nerdiest thing in the world. And then I remember the first time I got a $200 offer on one. I was like, what? Like somebody is willing to pay for this thing. And the moment I realized that, you know, I had been thinking now at that point about what eventually became art blocks and I didn't have the technical skills to code this myself. And I also didn't have disposable income to just kind of throw at this, but all of a sudden I had income coming in from these like CryptoPunk sales. So I sold a decent amount of these CryptoPunk zombies early on for, you know, anywhere between 200 and a thousand bucks in order to fund developers to help me build the original iteration of Artbox, which I think deployed on the Ethereum blockchain for the first time in mid 2018. And yeah, from there, it was just like iterating on this concept for a couple of years until I find, you know, listening. I think one of the important parts about this ecosystem is listening and understanding the community is just so vocal and willing to kind of give you what you need to understand what they want. And what finally ended up as Artblocks, what you see today, was launched in November of 2020, essentially just a combination of all the things that I had been working on, not just like since I started in the NFT ecosystem, but in my whole life, you know, a lot of like things came together to finally kind of create what our box is today. And it's been almost three years now. And, you know, I haven't looked back really and, you know, and just enjoying what, what's going on. Tell us about Chromie Squiggles. Show that part of the story in here, because a lot of people are familiar with Chromie Squiggles. So kind of tell us a little bit about that story as well. Well, the Chromie Squiggle was not originally intended to be an artwork for the sake of art itself, right? In fact, it was meant to be a demonstration of what could be done when you use the Ethereum blockchain to provide randomness or entropy to a generative art project. In the course of the last few years and kind of seeing how the response has been so positive for the Chromie Squiggle, you know, there's been plenty of critics and saying, hey, this wasn't created to be art because I've been very transparent about that. So it's not art. And one of the ways I like to respond to that is that sometimes when you're creating something with no intention of doing anything specific with it, you're kind of at this like most pure moment of, of clarity. And, you know, when you see, you know, what my life has been for the last however many years focused on color, I come from the ceramic tile world. You know, my company was always known to be like a more colorful company, working with gradients, having customers always ask me to help them make custom gradients and stipple because it's a lot hard to, it's a lot harder to do with tiles than it is with like pixels on a screen. And, you know, these things all kind of came together into this beautiful, simple, clean mark that ended up being the Chromie Squiggle. And it wasn't until a few weeks before launching Artblocks, I was not going to release the Chromie Squiggle as an artwork on Artblocks, but I used it for test purposes. So when I was testing the platform, I'd get the community to kind of help mint. And a lot of people started reaching out and be like, I can't wait to own this thing on mainnet. Like I can't wait to own the real thing. And I was shocked by that. I was actually like just humbled and excited. And, you know, I'd reply and be like, no, well, this isn't going to be an artwork on Artblocks. And what ended up happening is I got enough pushback from people surprised that I wasn't going to make it that I eventually did push forward and make it happen. Yeah. And just for those that haven't seen a Chromie Squiggle, because a lot of my audience isn't super familiar with, how would you describe what it is exactly? Well, it's a wavy rainbow line gradient. It's like a slinky almost, right? In some of them, in some cases, there's a slinky. There's some that have like kind of transparency to them. And the purpose originally was to demonstrate like that you can have seemingly unlimited outputs from a generative algorithm. And so what I did is I just took a bunch of point data and connected it with a very curvy line and then added some of those color features that I've kind of been working on my whole life. This idea of color spread and density and speed. When you zoom out and if you're not familiar with the Chromie Squiggle, they, they can look very similar to each other. But what's really beautiful is kind of how as this project has really kind of taken its own life way unexpected from where I originally 
thought would happen. People have become experts at the Chromius Quiggle, and even people that don't even dive in deeply can, you know, very much recognize their Chromius Quiggle, and you know, are are just really excited about this idea that they own something that's very individualized, very unique to them, but that's very clearly part of a much larger family of work, which is, you know, kind of demonstrated with the, the, the community that forms around Web3 projects. Well, for those who don't track what goes on in the world of NFTs, Chromie Squiggle is like in the top 10 or 20 of all NFT projects as far as just total ETH transacted. It's a pretty big collection and you've done a great job. And Artblocks today is a platform. Is that how we would describe this? Where you have lots of artists that are releasing generative art, correct? Correct. And when you say platform, I mean, that's what the common terminology is here these days with like tech related endeavors. We still kind of haven't figured out exactly what we are. Like, you know, some people call us a gallery because we are curating work and we're selecting artists. You know, some people within our team, you know, will refer to this more as a publisher, as like a conduit for people to release work. I think, you know, one of the things I push back on pretty regularly in, in the NFT world or in the digital art space is this idea that, you know, Web 2 or Web 1 or just whatever historical norms may not have an exact copy here within this ecosystem. I don't know what, exactly what we are. We're trying to figure that out. But, you know, we created this thing that enabled people to do a thing that they couldn't do before really effectively. I, I guess what, I'm, what I'd push back on is being trying to fit what we're doing within like a certain mold of whatever has existed in the traditional world in the past, because everything that we're doing is generally writing its own new playbook, just every single aspect from like distribution mechanisms to like visibility for artists. And even just this idea that there's a platform that's, you know, not quite self-service because obviously the artists are selected, but once the artist is selected, just this idea that an artist deploys work in this way is, is, is pretty unique. So yeah, kind of a roundabout answer. I think we're still figuring that out and we're excited to kind of figure that out over time. We're going to get to what generative art is in just a minute, but first thing I want to ask you to try to answer for anyone who's listening is why should artists, if there's any artists listening, consider generative, I mean, consider NFTs in general. We'll get to generative in just a minute, but what do you want to say to any creatives or artists that are listening right now as far as why maybe they ought to consider NFTs? I mean, at the most basic level, it's a timestamp, right? And it's a way of just saying, I put this here at this time in a way that is immutable, irreversible, irrevocable, with the ability to track provenance and the ability to uh, share with the world in a way that just could never happen before. You know, instantly any NFT that's created, minted is instantly available to the entire world to see in a pseudo public art style where like, you know, if it's digitally native work, anybody with any phone or computer or tablet can view the work in its native way. It's native way that it was meant to be viewed with no barriers. And obviously ownership is important and that's very much aligned with, you know, people wanting to collect these like, you know, pieces as part of their collection and the way they display them. But it's a new paradigm for inclusivity. And while some of the prices feel like they've kind of skyrocketed, just like in the traditional art world, there's a lot of very expensive things. A lot of those very expensive things are always held behind closed doors. And you can see a picture of a painting on a wall. You could see a really good scan of that painting. But there's something just 
more authentic and more genuine about seeing the actual work in its native state by anybody in the entire world with no restrictions and no limitations. So, you know, if you compound that with like, especially early on, you know, akin to kind of early Kickstarter, you could cut through the noise pretty quickly because there wasn't that much out there. And, you know, being early and then also later on when you're less early and it's more noisy, but being very skilled at what you do found the right people in a, in a much quicker way or much quicker fashion than releasing in the traditional art world. As it's become noisier, it's become harder. And I think artists need to understand that, you know, the success of many of the artists and, um, you know, kind of the proliferation of the concept of a digital object in an NFT has made it to where more people have come in and therefore there's been more activity. And naturally it makes it noisier and harder to be discovered. But, you know, the best of the best stuff seems to still be kind of crossing my timeline. And it seems like the artists that are really finding success are being celebrated in, a, in just a new paradigm of kind of discovery of art. I think that's something worth it for anybody that's in, you know, in the traditional arts. And, you know, I guess the only asterisk or caveat I'd put on there is to me, this is a digitally native technology. And that doesn't mean that you are not allowed to scan a painting and put it on the blockchain, but just be cognizant of the fact that this is a digitally native technology. And a lot of digital forward art was kind of underappreciated for many, many years. And this is digital art kind of finally getting its spotlight. And while I believe that there's going to be plenty of utilizations of this technology for the more physical world, and we see a lot of these things, and I'm personally exploring these things on projects myself, I am less drawn to, for example, a photograph of a sculpture that is minted as an NFT. And I know there's a lot of projects that are looking at using NFTs just as digital certificates of authenticity. The point of this is that you can prove authenticity of an object, and you, there is still no connection. Like The, the blockchain is air-gapped from the world the physical world. And so to me, the truest use case of this technology is, is, is in the way that you can authenticate the things that you're controlling using digital object technology. So anything that starts to fall outside of that, while I don't think it shouldn't be here or doesn't belong, just starts to have to give up or erode some of the brand value and like the, the value proposition of, of the technology. So, you know, digitally native artists should be the first to really dig into this. And I think one of the beautiful things is that Photography these days is fully digital. So to me, any photograph, any digital photograph, even scan to that matter, but digitally native photography, it fits right into the same concept. Okay, so let's explore generative art and kind of what makes it different than all the other art that you were just talking about. And then let's try to talk about why generative art is so important, right? Just so people can wrap their heads around exactly what this means. Generative art has existed for decades. It's not new. Computers have been utilized to draw or create audio for a really long time. And the automation that is presented through the use of generative art or algorithmic art is something that up until blockchain technology existed, the automation component of it was often lost. In fact, pre-art blocks, oftentimes I'd see works that were clearly generative, either because I knew that the artist was a generative artist or because you can sometimes kind of tell when something is kind of created with a computer, but like the hashtags under the art wouldn't say generative. It just wasn't what was spoken about the art because the process in the past was that an artist would create an algorithm and run through a bunch of outputs and self-curate the ones that they wanted and then go through the tokenization process, let's say with NFTs or even before that. You know, there was this moment, for example, on Instagram where I've been following generative artists for many years and I'd see brilliant work and think, oh man, tomorrow there's just going to be another image. And that ephemeral nature of generative art, the fact that the computer can generate seemingly unlimited outputs 
with no kind of control as to what is an addition size or what is like the breadth of this algorithm felt ephemeral. And it, it, it kind of always left me feeling with like this empty feeling inside of like, okay, yeah, am I ever going to remember this picture again? You know, tomorrow there's going to be a whole new slew of images on Instagram, of beautiful, beautiful images. So generative art essentially is computer coded art. It's art that's made by running a bunch of lines of code and you instruct the computer to present you with whether it's visual or audio results. Generative art, as we see it today using blockchain technology, essentially has utilized like the most important aspects of blockchain technology, which includes the decentralized and immutable storage to instead of hosting a pointer to an image, which is the way that the vast majority of NFTs are created, the blockchain, which is very expensive to store data on, instead stores the algorithm itself. And since we're storing the algorithm itself, and that algorithm generally we hold, at least at Artbox, we hold artists very accountable to being what we call resolution agnostic, which means that that algorithm will produce an output at any resolution, regardless of how big or how small it is. And that output should look identical at each of those resolutions. The idea is that if you take and you wanted to preserve an incredible piece of generative art that was stored in really high resolution, you know, that could be a 20, 30, 50 megabyte file and you can't put that on the blockchain, so you would create a pointer to that. But even that 50 megabyte file in five or 10 years, video technology, screen technology may advance such that the file has to be upscaled or it has to be shown smaller than the size of the screen itself. It's one or the other as the resolution of these. Can I ask a couple of clarifying questions? So it seems to me, and I'm going to try to translate this for everyone that's listening, that generative art is, for lack of a better word, some sort of script. I, I might not be using the right terminology, but some code that will essentially create a piece of art when it's called upon. And that piece of art is going to always generate the same way. Is that what I'm hearing you say? Correct. And that, that second component of this, which you just touched on, is the, the concept of determinism, meaning that, you know, once the piece is created or minted, as we say in the blockchain space, once that piece is created, every time you view that piece, every time you view the algorithm, it produces the exact same output for that specific token. While it might seem menial in that generative art has generally been a, a niche space and obviously requires a little bit further comprehension of scripting and coding and, and blockchain technology. What I think is really critical to understand is that in the past, an artist, even a generative artist would create an algorithm, would generate a bunch of outputs, would, would save them to their computer, then go through the process of minting the file, adding metadata for the file, and then, and then listing it for sale. What we've done with our blocks and what's happening generally in the generative art space in the NFT ecosystem is that the, the artist uploads the algorithm to the blockchain once. And that's, that's the end of what the artist does. And from there, the person that is purchasing the artwork comes to purchase the artwork with only information about what could come from the algorithm, but without knowing exactly or specifically what is going to come out of the algorithm. Specifically at Mint, just to clarify. At Mint. Yes. So... The, the token is created at the time of purchase instead of the token being created by the artist in advance and then listed for sale. And this, this is what we call on-demand generative minting. This is the idea that a collector comes and generates the art and is viewed for the first time by both the collector and the artist at the exact same time, which is a whole new paradigm of creation where the artist is required to curate the entire algorithm in advance and to view thousands of outputs in order to see 
oh man, I don't like brown and red together. So I'm going to code specifically that none of these outputs could randomly select brown and red together. They pre-curate the algorithm and it, they set an addition size. And this goes back to the ephemeral nature of algorithmic art. You could have literally trillions of iterations of a Chromie squiggle without them ever repeating. But art is additioned. Art is about some people feeling like they have ownership and they participate in supporting an artist and supporting a concept. And so the blockchain sets an addition, the artist sets an addition size on the blockchain. The artwork is released. People come and make a purchase of the outputs up until that addition size is met. And then that addition size, let's say the first 100, 1,000, 10,000, for example, with the Chromie Squiggle, represents the entirety of the kind of quote unquote officially time stamped versions of that. And that algorithm can be used to create seemingly unlimited outputs after that. But the artist is essentially encapsulating or freezing in time what they intended to do with that algorithm in a way that can be viewed in the future at infinite resolution. And we probably should talk about this, like, because we've had other artists like Amber, Vittoria and others on the show where they create art and then sometimes they'll scan it, you know what I mean? And they'll sell an edition with X number of amounts or they'll do a limited really inexpensive, limited time, buy as many as you want. This is a different kind of art because what I'm hearing you say is the artist is creating the script, for lack of better words, the rules, and then the artist kind of lets it out into the wild. <laughs> is that is that kind of what I'm hearing you say? Right. Does that kind of require a new mindset from an artist's perspective? Like, Because I would imagine a lot of artists might struggle with this. Absolutely. I mean, I think that's one of the hardest barriers of this, but that's utilizing the blockchain technology in its more pure native way. And so, you know, if you spun up a server and let somebody mint an edition of a thousand and all that information was stored on the server, well, there could still be value to that art. And there were websites that allowed you to do that pre-blockchain technology. This is literally using the blockchain in a way that is not a square peg round hole but instead provides like a product market fit for both digital art and collecting and provenance and authenticity in a way that really uh, was un unexplored. So how do artists who want to create generative art even get started? It sounds like they're going to have to partner with developers. I mean, any thoughts on like, maybe they've got a certain style of art that they've done in illustrator or something in the past and, how do they even go from like their style of art that they've done before to ultimately translating that into some sort of a generative concept? Well, when you take traditional art forms and you translate them into a generative concept, what you're really looking at there is a distribution mechanism for distributing individualized artworks, right? And I think, you know, myself personally, and I think a lot of the original collectors and especially all the original generative artists that have been making art with code for a long time will always just kind of elevate the pure artist coder as, you know, the A, the person that was making this type of art with passion before there was any clear path to monetization, which I think is really uh, authenticity is something that's very much missing sometimes in the, in the NFT ecosystem. And a lot of like the pushback from the outside world is just based on kind of the sometimes gross mechanics and financialization of the art. But you have to understand that there's these people that have been making this type of art for, for a decade or decades that now have a way to release it where the traditional art world infrastructure did not really support it in the same way. And if you're an artist that is a visual artist and you have interest in kind of seeing your artwork come to life, it's critical that those people have a path to being able to take advantage of the distribution mechanisms of, 
of this because you know a lot of what I spend my time talking about and I'm you know I'm giving a talk a TED talk in September you know on this concept of individuality or you know we've kind of coined this concept of one of one of X you know one of one is just a one of one piece so one of X is an addition where you can have ten thousand of the same image and a one of one of X is you know each one of the seemingly unlimited pieces is unique. This technology goes beyond just celebrating the traditional and generative artists, but enables not just art, creativity, creation, potentially design goods, fashion, et cetera, to allow every individual owner to have their own micro brand, their own tiny piece of something that is unique to them, but part of a larger family. And what that does is that it adds one layer of dialogue to the conversation. If you have an edition of a thousand and they're all the same and we all own the same piece, we can still celebrate it and be very excited about it. But when every single one of us owns the same piece, but slightly unique to us within the same family, it's just one objective layer more of dialogue to have around the piece. Oh man, I love green, but I got a yellow one. Does anybody want to trade uh, at the most basic level? Kind of some of the dialogue that we can be talking about, but then also the way that people dive into the algorithm and find what's called emergent traits, which are things that weren't necessarily planned by the artist, but just by the pure random nature and by the sheer volume of outputs, nature just kind of finds its way into these algorithms in some ways that kind of were unexpected. And so I think that it's really interesting for artists to have access to that. And sometimes what that means is that, you know, think about the idea that a there's many coders out there that found a creative side and started creating generative art, which is really beautiful. That's one of my favorite parts of this, this entire journey. And then there's people that are just straight up coders. They don't necessarily want to add their creativity, but they can help facilitate. It's one thing to, you know, maybe have a qualified painter be able to reproduce what an artist wants to see in a painting. But with code, it gets a little bit tricky and complex in terms of trying to creative direct or, you know, be creative director for an artist of something that a coder is doing. That said, a coder has the skills for coding. The artist has the skills for subject matter and color and composition that maybe the coder doesn't have. And what I think is beautiful is when an artist that's in the traditional world, works with a coder, elevates that coder, right? Doesn't just say, hey, code this thing for me secretly. I don't want anybody to know, but actually takes and elevates that coder, brings them along on the journey, gives them recognition for having been able to translate this and to facilitate this distribution method for this artist. In this case, now you do have a nice, like, harmony between the traditional artist or the contemporary artist that's looking for this distribution mechanism as a way of sharing their work in a novel way with the person that actually understands the code and essentially is creating the visual that you're seeing and collecting as a collector. Very cool. Let's talk about the collector side of it a little bit. There's a lot of people that invest in art and hypothesize that in the grand scheme of things, art is the one thing in the NFT world that might stand the test of time where PFP projects are kind of hot and all the rage right now. Tomorrow, they hypothesize that it's going to be art. So for those that are interested in collecting art, generative art in particular, what do they need to understand? What do you want to say to them? Well, collecting digital art is is interesting, right? Because it's like, pricing hasn't been figured out yet entirely like you know supply and demand and it's interesting to think that you know with art you might have supply and demand for individual aesthetics within individual mediums there's times in the nft space where there's more demand and supply of all the things which really affect the way that pieces are collected and pricing is done and you know one of the one of the things that i think new collectors especially need to 
really understand and I think give them some confidence in kind of what's happening within the ecosystem today is that as with every new technology, a lot of value early on was placed on the technology and not the content. And while that's unfortunate, that's actually just pretty normal human behavior. People were really excited. The same thing has happened with the dot-com bubble, et cetera. But as people have sobered up, as supply has exceeded demand, what we're seeing is that a significant more amount of value is being placed on the content. And the technology is maybe taking second stage behind uh, the content itself. If, you know, in, 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 a, in an ideal world, an NFT, the provenance, the authenticity, especially on-chain generative art, which to me is the best use case, like the best, most native use case for blockchain-related artwork in that everything is kind of maintained within the blockchain. All of these artworks and all of these pieces should have more value because they're NFTs. In the same way that, you know, a signed basketball card might have more value than one that is not. But that value to me should be like 1%, maybe 5% if it's on chain because there's like extra value in it being on chain. I'd venture to say that there are times in 2021 where 90%, maybe 95% of the value associated with an NFT was not the content at all, but actually just the technology, the frenzy, the hype and all that, that stuff. But ultimately, a NFT it is a higher quality, objectively higher quality representation of a digital artwork in that it affords a timestamp and authenticity. And then when you add the on-chain generative art components where all of the information to reproduce the work, resolution agnostic in a deterministic way is stored on-chain, that to me feels like an objective higher technical quality product in that from a technical, not aesthetic, technical quality product. And that should have some value. How will an investor even know though, if they're buying generative art versus non-generative art, is there a way for them to actually know when they're looking at a collection that's already kind of minted? Well, generally generative art is sticking to generative art platforms. So, you know, Artblocks is a really good example of that. Like, you know, you're buying generative art. In fact, with Artblocks, you know, you're buying on-chain generative art that you know has been has gone through a vetting process to make sure that it is resolution agnostic and it's deterministic you'd be surprised like the slight nuances that you get between browsers. And we go back to the artist and say, Hey, look, like it looks different on Safari than on Chrome. I really need you to change this because we want this to be deterministic. We want the person that's looking at this to know that they're looking at their work no matter what. Uh, so, you know, generative art platforms specifically are a great way to know that you're looking at that. If you're on a platform that uses, let's say IPFS based artwork, which is a pointer at the token level that points to a off chain, although IPFS is arguably a decentralized system as well, you may not know if it's generative or not. And then it's just up to the artist to say, hey, look, like I love generative art and I want to release my generative art this way. And that's fully within their, you know, like it's, it's perfectly fine for them to do that. You'll know it's not generative art when you see a photograph. You'll know it's not generative art when you see like hyper photorealistic outputs. And just, you know, this kind of goes to the second part when you say investor or collector, like a lot of times people kind of dive into this ecosystem and they dive in just head first. I think just being present and participatory and understanding the difference between the platforms and the standards with which platforms release artwork. You know, there has been a relatively clear value in the Artblocks generative art piece compared to other platforms. And a lot of that is just the vetting and the process with which it takes to release art on that platform. It's more difficult for an artist to release art on that platform. It's more intimidating in some cases, but the end result is this catalog of work, which is deterministic, resolution agnostic, 
fully or mostly on chain. There's a asterisk there for a couple different examples. To me, that's going to stand the test of time in a different way than than other things. That said, if somebody cares enough about something, like for example, IPFS based art, they're not going to lose it. Culture will make sure that that art thrives, and that's why you know a lot of times, especially like the on chain generative art maxis say, you know, like if enough people care about an artwork, it will exist in a hundred years, in a thousand years. It's not just going to disappear, even if it's not fully on chain. So to me, non-on-chain art is still amazing and perfectly viable and, and, and very critical to like the success of this ecosystem. The other side of it is if you're going to collect generative art and you plan to get it during the mint phase, right? This is where, is it wise for a collector to mint Or is it wiser to wait until the project is minted out and then select something that is visually appealing to them? Because obviously the risk you already mentioned with minting is you don't know what you're going to get until after you've bought it. It's kind of like the mystery box at the store, right? You don't know what's, you don't know what's inside. (laughs) Yeah. Or the little gumball machine. I mean, I guess if, if you really hate grape bubble gum, you probably shouldn't go out to a bubble gum machine and test your luck. If you only have one quarter, I think that, there are many people that prefer the on-demand generative minting experience. It is like an act of performance art in its own way. And there's a shared moment with the artist that I think people really, really kind of get excited about. But that's not for everybody. In fact, you know, many people will have the on-chain generative art, gosh, the on-demand generative minting concept moment. And then if they're not satisfied with their mint, they'll exchange it for others. And that's one of those things that while it's antithetical a little bit to the way that in the traditional art world, we are so hypersensitive to how many additions there are to something. The more additions, the more people that can participate, the less the price can escalate immediately because, you know, there's just not, there's just more supply and there's more to go around. And the more there's, there's something really meaningful about trading. If you don't like grape, but you like apple, the idea that you found someone that had the apple flavored gum and you traded with them, it does make it taste better. And, and I think that that the, that liquidity in in the excessive well, or quote unquote excessive supply, according to the more contemporary art world, is part of the beauty of it. And so letting people browse on the secondary is very valuable and, and very much an important part of the experience. And I don't think there's a right or a wrong way. I'm still a sucker for the on-demand generative minting experience. And I find myself really disappointed when I'm, when I'm on a call and I miss a drop and I have to go buy something on the secondary because I missed that moment with the artist of kind of letting the artist surprise me or delight me with the thing that they created. From a collector perspective, let's say someone wants to get into an existing collection that's like chromie squiggles, hypothetically, right? You're not fully minted out, but you're nearly almost minted out, right? Almost there. From a collector perspective, do you generally advise people buy what they find visually appealing? Or does it make more sense for someone to spend a little bit more money and go for something that's rare? I mean, just, you know, put your collector cap on and advise people. Because it seems to me art is very subjective, right? And it's, it's very much based on somebody might find something really valuable that you, Eric, didn't think was going to be valuable. I'm sure you found that to be the case with Chromie Squiggles, right? Yeah. I can't stress enough, buy what you love. Buy what you love and buy where you belong. Like if you really just want to be a part of a family of work, some people have to work to get to even be, I mean, the Chromie Squiggle was like 20 bucks when it was originally released, but today it's 20,000 bucks. Like 
it's it's really it's kind of almost frustrating for me because I want more people to participate in the Chromius Quiggle, but it's just at a price point that's inaccessible. And I think the idea that somebody could like work their way into having a Chromius Quiggle but be deterred by the fact that they can't get a rare one to me just doesn't really click, you know, so so well. Like sometimes just getting to participate in a project is 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 the most exciting part. You automatically join a community of like-minded individuals. You know, if your if your budget enables you to participate at a higher level. I think that's really great. Some projects will differentiate between customers or collectors at different levels, and you may have access to more elite benefits as a result of that. But with the Chromius Google, that's not the case. And I think, you know, what's what's so critical to me, and when we talk about democratization of art, and obviously the Chromius Google at 20,000 bucks a pop is not a democratized piece of art anymore. But, you know, if you go visit the Mona Lisa in Paris and you walk out with a postcard, you can't have the same dialogue with the person that owns the Mona Lisa as the person that has the postcard. I mean, you sort of can, but it's not the same. It's like one of them is just like a reproduction of the other. Whereas with generative art, like you, you know, the person that owns a, a in this space, we call it a floor, basically just kind of like the one that doesn't have any rarity to it. It's just like the most basic version of the piece. If you own a floor archetype and you want to have a conversation with someone that owns a cube archetype, which is one of the most rare kind, you guys are talking the same language. You both own the algorithm, the piece, the outputs. You both have your preferences on the color. You're both fascinated by the same concept and the technology. And so even though the two will have a entirely differentiated price point, you're both part of that same conversation in that same family. And so I, I encourage people to kind of dive in and start with floor pieces and buy what you like because, you know, in some projects, for example, if you look at the CryptoPunks, early on with CryptoPunks, a more rare CryptoPunk was many, many, many multiples of a floor CryptoPunk. And today, as the value of the entire collection has gone up, there's been a compression of the difference. So a very rare CryptoPunk there's one called an orange side, which is like a pretty rare one. And, you know, I remember I, that was the last one I got and it was very hard to get a hold of that. When I did that, it was probably 20 times the price of a floor crypto punk. Today it might be three times the price. And so this compression happens where all of a sudden the value of the rare pieces does not feel as significant in comparison to the floor. So, you know, and if you're buying it because you love it, then it doesn't matter at all. If you're buying it for an investment perspective, then you're you have a little bit of a risk there, and you know you, that's why you buy where you belong, like where you feel comfortable, where you're not risking anything other than having to make a decision one day that you don't have enough wall space and you have to take that down from the wall so that you can put something else up. When you guys mint a new collection on Art Blocks, what's the typical range of cost to get in on mint on a lot of these collections? In these days, it's been beautiful. The, you know, we are getting back towards a more inclusive platform. You know, you, you can acquire at Mint a piece of art blocks, artwork for less than 100 bucks oftentimes. Okay. But, you know, it just depends on how highly anticipated the Mint is. You know, we've had projects as of late that one individual edition is $1,500, you know, as an edition of, let's say, 400 or 500 You know, there were times in our blocks where it was just even crazier than that. But today, you can Mint, you can participate in a non- frantic mint because things are calmer with a really beautiful Dutch auction mechanic where it settles and everybody ends up paying the exact same price for the artwork. So you don't have to participate in what we call a gas war, which is where everybody's putting in their bid at the exact same time. You can put it in at the very top. Let's say it starts at 1.5 ETH and drops down to 0.1 ETH. Well, you can just put in 1.5 and if it sells out at 0.1, then you get 1.4 ETH back. And so, you know, the, the, the process has become simplified. It becomes less risky for people. There's a little bit less FOMO, 
fear of missing out, you know, that kind of happens with the blockchain space. And I don't know that this is going to be how it's going to go forever. Right. But right now it's a beautiful time to participate within this ecosystem. Right now is the time to dip your toes in the water. Yeah. It's a beautiful time because there's more supply than demand is really what I'm hearing you say. Right. And it's a great time to get in on some great art. Just curious what your business model is. How does Artblocks actually survive outside of the crummy squiggles initial crazy money that probably it brought into the company, but how are you guys actually making money right now? I mean, you know, what's funny is that our, the Chromius Google is probably one of the least revenue generators of all blocks of all time, just because it was sold for such a low price early on. Oh yeah. Our blocks makes 10% of every mint of every piece that's sold. And in a world where everybody pays secondaries, our blocks makes two and a half percent of the secondary sale. And the artist makes 5% of the secondary sale. We also have a kind of, you know, I've identified and as my team is aligned with this for the most part that, you know, there is an opportunity for other platform brands, et cetera, to provide the same vibe of on-demand generative minting for their own audiences and constituencies. And so we've created this product called Artbox Engine, which allows other people to kind of release artwork using our infrastructure, using our technology. So we, you know, we make a percentage of those sales as well. That's like a white, a white label almost of your technology. Essentially, yeah. yeah, it's like a white label of the technology, essentially just like a tech partner of helping other people not have to build out all the infrastructure for on-demand generative minting that we've not just built up, but hardened over time. And what's beautiful is, you know, the early days of Artblocks, we were on Discord and Discord is, you know, this community of originally gamers, but this is a really wonderful place where the NFT ecosystem has come together. And in the early days of Artblocks, the ecosystem inside of our Discord was just like a vibrant place. You know, this is before there was a, a heavy financialization of the art. And it was all about people being excited about what the next mint was going to be, sharing their mints, showing the mints on their wall printed, putting it in their 3D metaverse worlds. And people still do that. It's just, you know, the tone has changed a little bit from the fact that people invested heavily at, at some of the higher price points that, you know, kind of just changed the, the tone within the ecosystem. And that early feeling, I think, is something that could actually exist with any, especially apparel brand or design good brand. It's like, you know, people do like to share what they have. And it's a little bit of easier to share what you have when you have something different than what everybody else has. And when you're in an ecosystem that is receptive to you sharing what you have, not like looking like you're showing off what you're doing. And I do think that us creating this infrastructure and these rails for people to be able to not just share what they have, but to have something that's unique to them can be applied to, you know, as like a new paradigm for marketing and for releasing not just creative artwork, but creative products in general. Eric Calderon, also known as Snowfro, thank you so much for answering all my questions. If people want to discover more about Artblocks, where do you want to send them? And if they want to connect with you on the socials, do you have a preferred platform, if any, that you're active on? Yeah, so you know, our website is artblocks.io and our Twitter account is artblocks underscore io. My personal Twitter account is art on blockchain. Yeah, it's you know, it's a really interesting place, Twitter, but it is the place that a lot of this information is communicated and disseminated. And then you can always join our Discord. It's discord.gg4 slash artblocks and come meet all of, you know, the fellow generative art nerds that are just really excited about not just this new paradigm for minting and, and collecting generative art, but also the NFT technology as a whole. Thank you, Eric, for coming on the show and sharing your insights with us. Oh, thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. Hey, if you missed anything, we took all the notes for you over at socialmediaexaminer.com slash W83. If you're new to the show, be sure to follow us. And would you let your friends know about this show? I'm at Stelzner on Instagram. 
and at Mike underscore Stelzner on Twitter. This brings us to the end of yet another episode of the Web3 Business Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Stelzner. I'll be back with you next week. I hope you make the best out of your day and may Web3 continue to change your world. The Web3 Business Podcast is a production of Social Media Examiner. The information provided in the Web3 Business Podcast is provided solely for educational purposes. Do not treat what you hear as investment, trading, or financial advice. Do your own research. Hey, just a quick reminder, join the Social Media Marketing Society today and level up your marketing for your company or your clients. Visit smmarketingsociety.com to find out more.